It's awesome to see everyone. My name is Zach. For those of you who haven't got a chance to meet, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. If you're looking for a seat, there are a few open over here. It's so awesome to see you guys, uh, to see your whole face, and to see people who... You know, for, for COVID and safety reasons and whatnot, you've been worshiping with us online, but you're coming back in. I just love getting to see you. There are uh, people that were pregnant when COVID started, and now their children are old enough to drive. And it's seeing, I just like, this is, this, oh man, my heart is full, full, full this morning. We are going to continue in our series called Sons and Daughters. We're going through the book of Ephesians. And so as we get going, I want to encourage you to take out your Bible, take out something to write with. Maybe that's your phone. Maybe you brought a journal today. But I believe that God wants to speak to you. How many believe that God wants to speak to you this morning? Amen. God wants to speak to you through his word and by his spirit. And as we go to the word of God, God has something that he wants to encourage you with today, something he wants to speak into your life, some way that he wants to build you up and shape you and help you see Jesus and the life that Jesus leads us into. Now, I wanna ask you a question as we get going. Have you ever been in a historic place a place where just so much history that shaped the world happened right there. When Jeremy said the question of where do you want to go, maybe some of you said a historic place. You know, you like history. I remember when I was 16, growing up, my dad, and still does, works for a university. And so he would travel for the university, and from time to time, we would go with him on his trips and one summer when I was 16, he had to go for work to England, and he and my mom saved money, and they took me and my sister to go with them on kind of this cultural trip for a 16-year-old guy, and they wanted to show me uh, England, these historic places there. And they took me to one place in London called Westminster Abbey, Westminster Abbey. And I remember as a 16-year-old walking up to this place that I just knew was very, very, very old. And it had this historic feel. I wasn't, I didn't know Jesus. I wasn't walking with him at that time. I wasn't a very spiritual person. The things that were interesting to me in life were sports and girls. But I remember walking up to this, this place and just being like, there's something powerful here. Now, for those of you that aren't brushed up on British history, you weren't reading your history books this morning before you came to church, just a little fun facts about Westminster Abbey. It was built in around 960 AD, which means it's about 1,000 years old. Uh, for the last 1,000 years, all of the coronations of the English and British monarchs have happened there. So if you've ever watched a coronation or a, a, a royal family kind of ceremony, it's a good chance that's at Westminster Abbey. In fact, one of their recent weddings, a billion people tuned in to watch set in Westminster Abbey. Uh, as I walked through the grounds there, uh, you found these, these uh, memorial sites, these burial stones, and I learned that scientists like Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin were buried there. I remember that I found that writers like Charles Dickens and T.S. Eliot were buried there. They had commemorative stones to Shakespeare and C.S. Lewis and William Wilberforce. And I just remember as a 16-year-old being like, man, a lot of history has happened in this place. Uh, these many years later, it still stands with me, just that moment of awe, of feeling like 
Our world was changed by things that happened right where I'm standing. I wonder if you've ever been to a historic place like that. Today, I wanna take you to one. Not a place, but a scripture. I'm gonna take you to a scripture as we continue in Ephesians that has changed history has changed and reshaped the course of our civilization, our world over the last few thousand years, a historic place. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter six. If you're taking notes today, the title of my talk is A New World, A New World. And our text for today is gonna be Ephesians chapter six, verse five, through nine, a new world. Now, you guys know we've been studying the book of Ephesians this spring as a church grouped under this idea of sons and daughters because we learn in the opening passages of Ephesians that God in Christ has adopted us into his family, has brought us in, has made us sons, made us daughters. And so we say a lot as a church, we want to remind one another that you are not an accident, you are not an orphan, you are not just here by happenstance. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the king. And as sons and daughters, Ephesians 4 tells us, hey, we've got some mindsets that we need to adapt, we need to adopt, some ways that we've been thinking that don't line up with who God has made us in Jesus. Maybe some ways that we thought in our old life, but in this new Jesus life, there's a new way of thinking. And so scripture calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so we've been working to adopt as sons and daughters healthier, more life-giving, more Jesus-focused, more kingdom-focused mindsets. I think we could all agree coming out of 2020 and even the start of 2021, we need some renewal in our minds, some fresh life, some healthier thoughts going on because there's been so much negativity to focus on. So hopefully you've been being built up and being renewed. I love this series. I love the book of Ephesians and I love getting to walk through this with y'all. I've been challenged each and every week and I hope you've been challenged and inspired to as a son or daughter to be renewed in your minds. Starting in Ephesians 5, whereas the first part talks about being sons and daughters, the first four chapters of being sons and daughters, starting in Ephesians 5, we see Paul teaching the Ephesian church about how they are to live as sons and daughters. Not just how they are to think, but how they are to live from those new thoughts. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago, just as by way of review, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul gives the motto of our new family, the motto of the family of Jesus, the thing that guides the way we relate to one another and live our lives, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we call this the Jesus way motto, that Paul is telling the Ephesian disciples of Jesus that the Spirit would tell us today that as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters, that we are to love others with the love that Christ has loved us. That in the way that Jesus has loved us, that's to be the guiding influence and impetus for the way that I treat others, the way that I live my life, the way that you live your life. I love the simplicity of this. I love that Christianity is not 9,000 rules and formulas and procedures that you have to remember, and it's got to be very specific. No, it's, it's real simple. 
God loves you. He showed you that in the way that Jesus died on the cross for all of us. And now, as those who have been loved like that, we are to love with that same kind of love, to love others. As we do, it leads us into the rich and abundant life that Jesus has for us. Paul moves from Ephesians 5 into speaking about what does it look like? How do we apply this? Let's paint a picture. Let's give an example. He's a master teacher. Great teachers use examples. And so he takes it into their character, and then he takes it into their home. And he speaks to them, as Donnie shared with us a couple weeks ago, he speaks to them about living this life of love in their marriages. He speaks to them about living this life of love with their children, And today, we're going to read where he speaks to the Ephesian church about how they are to live this life of love as slaves and masters. An easy topic to cover on a Sunday morning, uh, but we're going to go straight into it. Now, the way that Paul did this is really interesting. And this was new to me as I was preparing uh, for this portion of Ephesians. I've read Ephesians maybe, uh, I don't know, a hundred times. At one point, I memorized most of it, like I'm familiar with the book, but this stuck out to me as I was preparing, is that Paul enters into what's called the household codes, where he writes about how our houses are to reflect God's house. Right? He spends the first half of the book talking about God's house, the second half of the book talking about your house and mine. These are called the household codes. Where household codes were a common thing in the Roman Empire. They spent a lot of time thinking about this and writing about particularly how men, free men, who they viewed as superior, in charge, they're the ones, how they were to rule their home how they were to rule their wives, how they were to rule their children, how they were to rule their slaves. Aristotle, the famous philosopher, wrote one of these household codes where he wrote out how was a man to rule his home. The Roman Empire was, had this strong belief that in the way that men ruled in their home, that that was the stabilizing force for society. That was the building block for society. How were they to rule? It was all about power, authority, order. How were they to rule? Right? Paul comes along and he kind of takes it and then puts the Jesus flavor in it. And instead of focusing on how to rule, he speaks about their house. He speaks in the form that they would have been familiar with. Husbands, your wife, your kids. He speaks in that form. But instead of focusing on how to rule, He speaks about how to love. I want to make sure you get that. Instead of speaking to them about the way of Rome, where it was all about ruling and all about power and all about the men getting what they wanted. No, he speaks to them as a son, as a daughter. Our households are not primarily defined by who is in charge. And here's how things go. But it's, we're called to be households defined by love. Not how to rule, how to love. Not how to rule, how to love. Let's see it. Y'all aren't going to talk to me today, but that's a preaching point right there. I, I, I might have to talk to myself. I'm going I'm to give a wave offering on that one because that's, that's, man, we don't even need to go anywhere else today. That's awesome. As he speaks, 
Interestingly enough, what's different than the common household codes of the day, the common codes were written just to men. Paul writes and he speaks both to husbands and to wives. Paul writes and he speaks both to fathers and to children. Paul writes and he speaks both to slaves and to masters. That was very, very different. And what you need to see, what you need to realize, what you need to understand in doing that is that everyone has a part to play. That everyone is valuable. That every member of the house is important. Have you ever been around someone where they ignored you? Like where you go into a group, you meet someone, you kind of, you know, and you can tell that they want to be done talking to you as soon as they can. Or they just kind of look over you and look at the next person, right? Makes us feel like, gosh, I don't know what's wrong with me, right? And when people speak to us, it makes us feel like we're valuable. And Paul is communicating the value that God places on people as he speaks to each member of the Roman household. And here's what I want you to get today. When we start talking about this new world, what I want you to walk away with is that when we adopt the, way, the Jesus way motto, in our homes and in our workplace, in our homes and in our workplace, it rebuilds, it renews, and it restores our world. I'll say that again. If you're taking notes and you don't get anything else today, that's what I want you to get. When we adopt the Jesus way motto, it rebuilds, it renews, and it restores our world. I love it. So we'll be in Ephesians 6 as he takes the Jesus motto and he begins to speak into slaves and masters. Now, I know that this is a complicated text. This is a text, when, as we start to go through it, uh, if I'm sitting where you are, I'm like, oh, this would be interesting. What, what, what's gonna happen here? Oftentimes, we glance over this and move on to the more touchy-feely parts where it's like, oh, that feels good. This is, you know, can feel a little complicating. But uh, this is actually revolutionary, and that's what I want to share with you today. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with their eye on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were seeking the Lord, not people, if you are serving the Lord, rather, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, you can imagine this would have been read to a house church in Ephesus. And as it was read, this letter from Paul, you can imagine that the slaves would hear this with surprise because they're actually being spoken to. They have a part to play. So you know that would have caught them off guard. And it would make them think, wow, God sees me and God wants to reward me where their whole system and society was based on class and your background and kind of your rank in life. God is saying this, I'm not about rank. I, I'm gonna reward you. There's no partiality with me. I'm gonna reward you based on what you do. That would have been heartwarming. But the surprise would have come both to slaves and to masters in verse nine. And that's where we're gonna spend most of our time. In verse nine, Paul says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. 
do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Now, as we read verse nine, you might have paused if you got what he's saying. Just to slow down, rewind it if you missed that. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Wait, what? What do you mean in the same way? Well, what did Paul tell slaves to do? He told them to obey their masters, to give them respect, fear, sincerity of heart, just like they would obey Christ, to serve wholeheartedly as if they were serving the Lord. And masters, do the same thing to your slaves. So let's, let's break it down. He says, slaves, obey your masters, and masters, obey your slaves. Slaves, respect your masters, and masters, respect your slaves. Slaves, serve your master wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord. Masters, serve your slaves wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord. Like, let that just mess with your mind a little bit. What's he doing? He is reshuffling the deck of this system that was so normative in their society. And he's saying, for followers of Jesus, speaking about slaves and masters, he is leveling the playing field. He's dissolving kind of this slave-master relationship, and he's putting them on equal footing. He's not calling them slaves, he's calling them brothers. In the book of Philemon, Paul breaks this down in kind of practical application. In that, in that book, Onesimus has run away from his master, and Paul knows the master and knows the slave, and Paul is trying to bring reconciliation between the two. Here's what Paul says to Philemon. He says, I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. I want you to receive him as you would receive me. So Paul walks out what he's talking about. And I love this uh, comment from Pastor Gavin Ortland on this passage and on uh, um, the book of Philemon. He says, in other words, Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and builds in its place a brother-brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity with which the apostle himself would be treated. Thus, even before the actual institution of Roman slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. If, you're, if you got your phone doing notes, you want to do that hundred emoji, hundred emoji, hundred emoji, fire, fire, fire. Wow. Man. If you speak in tongues, you might need to speak in tongues over that. I mean, I just got tears in my eyes, right? So, so let, let's lean into it. We kind of understand what he's saying, as shocking as it may be, but let's lean into it. When we adopt the Jesus way motto, it rebuilds, it renews, and it restores our world. So let's go with the first one. When we adopt the Jesus way motto, like what Paul is talking about here, it deconstructs and rebuilds our world systems. It deconstructs, it tears things down, and it builds new things in its place. 
this text reminds us of the devastating effects of sin, both personal and societal, both within ourselves, our own pride, our greed, our anger. We've covered that in Ephesians. But here Paul is showing us that sin is not just confined to my heart and yours. When sinful people get together, guess what? They do sinful things. When those sinful things become normalized, that becomes sinful systems, right? The Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. They treated slaves uh, like they were just uh, grass that could be here today and gone tomorrow, right? That's a sinful system. And the power of sin not only impacts our hearts, but it impacts our systems. As followers of Jesus, this is like basic for us, like when a sinner and a sinner get together, what do they do? They sin, right? When they make rules, what are those rules? Those are rules to reinforce sin. What we see here as he's speaking is this deal that was normal in Roman culture, was a system of sin, was an outworking of sin. Historians tell us that all early civilizations including Samaria, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, China, India, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Muslims all practiced slavery. The Roman economy was built on the backs of slaves. Slavery was so common, it was believed that every household in Athens and Rome had slaves. Slavery was normal, as normal to them as you going to lunch today and eating chips and salsa are to you. The philosophers Aristotle and Plato said that slavery was a function of nature. This is just the way that it is. The pragmatists said that slaves were needed for the economy. The economy of Rome was held up and built on the backs of slaves. Status climbers counted the number of slaves uh, that you own. That was your symbol of success. In our day, maybe it's Instagram followers, Facebook fans, Twitter followers. In their day, it was how many slaves do you own? Why do I share that? I want you to see that slavery is a product of a fallen world. That's not unique to the Romans. It's not unique to this situation. It is a product of humanity. It is normal in human history. Sinful people getting together, doing sinful things. Historian Rodney Stark notes that as Paul writes these words in Ephesus that we're reading today and the other writers of the scripture, that this is the first place where slavery, as it had been constructed, was challenged on ethical grounds and it begins to be deconstructed right here. This is why I said you're standing on historic ground. This is ground zero. For the power systems that beat people down and destroyed lives that were assumed to be normal, this is when the gospel comes at it full force. Paul is writing here something that has never been challenged like this in human history. There were some Stoic philosophers who had kind of talked a little bit about the equality of humanity, but when it came time for them to give up their slaves, well, now that's a different story. That's a nice idea, but you know, this is how we're gonna do it. Paul, on the other hand, is saying, no, 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 way of Jesus Right, We don't operate by those same systems and standards. In fact, we identify those toxic systems and standards that are defined by the power of sin, and we're building something new. God, through us, is building something new, right? No longer slave, brother, brother. Let's go. I like that. 
Paul, on the other hand, applying the Jesus way of life to the structures of their day, does not do so just in theory, on ethical and theological grounds, but in practice, saying, and you also need to do something about it. Masters, you need to treat your slaves as equal. You need to love them with the same self-sacrificial love that Jesus has loved you. Right here, we stand at ground zero, imagining a different kind of world. Realize in Paul's day, the idea of challenging the institution of slavery or the power dynamics behind it was unheard of. And here Paul is writing and painting a picture of something new. Now, let's be really honest. There are tons of Christians throughout history who didn't really take this advice. They applied uh, what we're all guilty of from time to time, that selective listening. You remember when you were a kid and if your parents, you know, were telling you something maybe you didn't want to hear, it's like, oh, I didn't hear that, mom. I didn't hear that, dad, right? But if it was anything close to what you wanted, it like latched in your brain for years, right? Christians, we have uh, at times done our own selective listening to God's word and didn't take this seriously. It's important for us to be real with this today. It's important for us to acknowledge this today. And here's the reason why. Without acknowledging it, there can be no real healing. And without acknowledging it, we're gonna fall to the same pride that previous generations fell to thinking they had it all together. Right? So it's important for us to be honest. It's important for us to realize that slave masters quoted the first part of this Ephesians verse but didn't quote the second part. Conveniently, let's just put verse nine out. In fact, interesting fact, you know that uh, in America there were slave Bibles where Christians edited God's word and they took out things like the story of Exodus, all about God freeing the slaves. Ooh, better pull that out. (laughs) They took out many of the Old Testament prophets who spoke and challenged the structure, sinful structures and systems of society. Let, let's move that out. They actually took out John 3, 16. You know that verse Jeremy quoted about God loving the world? Let's pull that out. They pulled out the book of Revelation. They didn't want slaves to know about new heaven and new earth and God restoring all things, right? The main things they highlighted were verses that fit what they wanted, which was to rule people. But we are in the way of Jesus. We're not focused on ruling people. We're focused on loving people. We're not editing God's word. We are taking God's word and letting it edit us, right? We're not trying to rebuild God. We're trying to let God rebuild us and our world. So as important as it is that we acknowledge the sin of the church, of one another, of our forefathers and foremothers, the sin that still goes on today, it's also important to acknowledge that there are bright lights within Christian history over this issue. The sons and daughters who didn't selectively listen but joined with Jesus in tearing down the toxic systems and structures and envisioning and laboring for something new, and I've got two minutes left, guys. I, I'm, on, I'm on point one, I'm on point one, so sorry, uh, man. So let me give you a few. I don't have time to go into all of them today, but we'll, we'll do a few. 
Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers in the year 333 or so, late 300s, he laid out a line of reasoning, taking this teaching from Paul and others in the New Testament that vilified uh, the institution of slavery, saying it was incompatible with Christianity as a whole. It was the first truly anti-slavery text of the patristic age. In the seventh century, St. Bathilda, I hope I got her name right, wife of King Clovis, became famous for a campaign to stop slave trading and to free all slaves. In 851, St. Ascar, who was an apostle to the Vikings, began his efforts to halt the Viking slave trade. Uh, in the 10th century, bishops in Venice, Italy, did public penance for past involvement in the slave trade, and they sought to prevent all Venetians from being involved in slaves. Pope Paul III in the 1500s, get this, get what I'm about to read to you, this is just blows my mind. He wrote, speaking about the slave trade in the new world, speaking about the slave trade in America, he said this, Satan, the enemy of the human race, who always opposes all good men so that the race may perish, has thought up a way unheard of before now by which he might impede the saving word of God from being preached to the nations. He has stirred up some of his allies who, desiring to satisfy their own greed and presuming to assert far and wide that the Indians of the West and the South who have come to our notice in these times be reduced to service like brute animals under the pretext that they are lacking in the Catholic faith. And they reduced them to slavery, treating them with afflictions that they would scarcely use with brute animals. Therefore... We, noting that the Indians themselves are indeed true men by our apostolic authority. I mean, that's breaking out like the ace of spades right there. When you, when you say that, it's like, wow, okay. Decree and declare by these present letters that the same Indians and all other people, even though they're outside the faith, should not be deprived of liberty or their possessions and are not to be reduced to slavery, and that whatever happens contrary to this be considered null and void. Wow. I could tell you about revivalist Charles Finney. In the Second Great Awakening, he would preach, and thousands would be converted to faith. Thousands would be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you read the account of his revivals, you're like, the book of Acts is happening right here. And one of the fruits, everywhere his revival would go, People whose hearts were transformed would join abolitionist societies. There was fruit in their lives, but they began laboring for a new kind of world. We won't go down these paths today, though, for the sake of time. Uh, just as you know, I, I just, we're, we're standing here at Demo Day. Old ways and old mindsets in this passage are being demoed, and something new is being built. I do realize that probably a major question that comes up when we read this is, well, Zach, if, if that is the case, why didn't Paul just say, hey, let your slaves go free? Wouldn't that have been simpler? I'm sure some of you are thinking that. Good question. In the same way, if Paul has simply commanded them to release their slaves, uh, I, I, how to put this? Their economic system was built on slavery. We live in an economic system that's free market capitalism. You need a job, you can go over to Chick-fil-A, Whataburger or wherever and try and get one. That's just not the way it was. So if he just said, hey, let go of your slaves, there may actually be slaves that would have put them in a uh, less desirable position, right? Because what are they gonna do, right? Their, their industry was farming, so you need land, you need family land for that. 
or it was trade. You need capital. Slaves aren't going to have either. So it's not as simplistic as Paul is looking at this and how we go about it. Second reason, and I think this is even more important, in our house that we live in now, we bought it four years ago. We're so excited about it. Move in, it looks awesome. We made some money off the house we sold before so we could redo some stuff. Look beautiful. My wife is amazing, uh, making things look pretty. If you think I look well dressed today, it's because she said, This is what you need to wear. Um, <clears throat> we get in there and we start to notice that there's uh, a couple months after, and we see some cracks in the walls. You know, and I'm, I'm hoping, oh, okay, let, maybe, maybe I could fix some of this sheetrock, watch some YouTube videos. And, you know, it, it's not that, right? It, it's the foundation. So Christina's like, hey, we need to address this head on. I don't know about you, but sometimes problems that seem really big to me, it's easier just to pretend they're not there. <laughs> like, oh, you know, she's like, we gotta address this head on. So we call out an inspector, a, a, a foundation person. And this guy walked up and he was like the OG of foundations. <laughs> Like he was an older guy and you knew that he just like knew foundation. So he kind of walks up like wild, wild west, like cowboys coming town, put things right. He walks in our house and guys, it was worse than I thought. It, well, he went in there a minute. He looked at the cracks. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, you actually don't have a foundation problem. You have a slab foundation and these cracks mean you have a slab leak, which means the pipes under your house have corroded over time. And so it's not about your foundation. We actually got a tunnel under the house. He said, I don't do that, so I don't make money off this. I'm just telling you what it is. Uh, a, a person that you know, tells you something that doesn't, they don't make money off of, it's amazing to me. But anyway, he, he tells me that. So we have to get a company to come out and tunnel under our house and replace the pipes that were down there that were leaking, that were causing the floor to bend that was creating the cracks in the walls. Like the problem was down, 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 deep. Keep that in mind. <laughs> when you buy a house, get a plumbing inspection. Here's the thing. When we start talking about this and looking beyond just pragmatic realities of the Roman economy, how many of you know that you can change a law without changing a heart? How many of you know that I could have patched over some cracks on my wall but not change what the real problem was in my house. And the way of Jesus reminds us that we need more than just things to be deconstructed and rebuilt. We need more than just changed laws. We do need changed laws, but we need changed hearts. We need changed hearts. We need someone that's willing to walk in and say, hey, your problem is not just these cracks. You do need to deal with those, but until we deal with these pipes that are underneath the house, you can patch that crack, it's just gonna come back. And for those of us familiar with American history, we know this. Slavery in our nation is abolished in name, but hearts aren't changed. And we enter into what's known as the Jim Crow era of the South. You guys know I used to be a history professor, so I gotta nerd out on this a little bit, right? Slavery was gone in name, but the ways that life was kept former slaves in positions of oppression. We were watching the movie The Help. How many of you have seen The Help, right? You remember that. You see it lived out, right? The law was changed, but the heart wasn't changed. As followers of Jesus, we say, hey, laws do need to change, but it starts with the heart. 
Paul's going after it and he's not going to the Roman courthouse. He's going to God's house. He's not starting with the government. He's starting with the church. He's not starting with a rule out here. He's coming after you and me and what's inside of us. And he's saying, you need far more than a cracked wall being fixed. We got to go after the heart. The problem is deeper. It's deeper than you thought. It's not just about a rule. It's about sin in our hearts that makes us treat people like animals, that puts us in win-lose situations, that makes me want to win and dominate, and you want to win and dominate in survival of the fist, and he's coming after that. Because he's saying the way of Jesus is going to tear down the structures and rebuild things, but it's going to renew hearts, right? We see here Jesus as the great physician. We see him diagnosing the problem. The OG foundation repair person coming in and be like, oh, I know these cracks. You got to go down here to fix those, right? And what does Paul do? What does Paul do? As he, as he talks about Jesus, the physician, he reminds them that Christ writes his prescriptions, not in ink, but in his own blood. He doesn't come with a sword just to beat people down. And here's how you rule. He comes with a scalpel called mercy. I love how Derwin Gray put scalpel called mercy. And he reminds them of what Jesus had done on their behalf. Remember, he's just building up. You love in the way that Jesus has loved you. How did Jesus love you? Jesus loved you like that. You go and love. He's dealing with their hearts. And we transform hearts. We can begin to transform society. We can begin to transform structures. We need them both. We need them both. Um, man, I, I go on for a couple hours. I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. Uh, I, I, well, I do want to say a couple other things. <laughs> pump, pump fake. Pump fake. So points of application. The change we need starts in the church. The change that we need in our world. Let's pull it from the Ephesians. Let's pull it to you and me. The change that we need to fix our broken world. Laws are important, but we're kidding ourselves and we're ignoring history if we don't realize, hey, it starts right here. We're, we're, we're not informed of the way of Jesus that says, God, I need you to change me. I need you to change whatever is in me that wants to win and lord it over people and pride and greed and all those things, Lord, that makes me wanna get me and mine and build my, I need you to change me. I need you to make me more like Jesus. And I'm concerned, I'm concerned that as sons and daughters that we don't realize that the change that we need isn't going to happen from the outside in, but from the inside out. I'm concerned that we over this past year have been formed more by Fox News, by CNN, by YouTube, by Facebook, by donkeys and elephants, by the spirit of Rome than the spirit of Christ by Facebook and not the face of Jesus, right? We need to be transformed by the gospel, hearts made new, and as our hearts are made new, our lives are made new. That means Monday morning you go into work and the culture in your office, the culture in your school, the culture where you work may say one thing, may treat people one way, but you're like, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not defined by my culture. I'm defined by Jesus. I'm not defined by what you say. I'm defined by a son or daughter. And I'm going to love in the way that Jesus, who died on the cross for me, who came for me in my slavery, came for me in my brokenness, came for me in my just foolish rebellion, 
right? And if we lose sight of that, man, we lose sight of everything. Let the great physician do his work today. And as you realize and we realize Christ's love for us, and as we carry that into our marriages, and we carry that into our family, if we carry that into our working relationships, if we carry that into our workplace, guess what? It's going to heal the world. It's going to renew the world. It's going to restore the world. It's going to rebuild the world. God wants to work through you and through me. God works through his sons and his daughters. God has anointed us and empowered us with the Holy Spirit that we would go forth and love with the same love that we have been loved. I want to invite you to stand with that.